So let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and turn uh, to 1 Thessalonians. We're continuing our study of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 2 this morning in the next uh, few weeks, a couple of weeks anyway. Uh, as I was thinking about uh, this message this morning, uh, evangelism is what really jumps off the page when you get to chapter uh, 2 as Paul continues to describe the circumstances surrounding his first visit to Thessalonica and how these people came to faith and so forth. But I was thinking about how my family and I are going to be traveling to Florida next month uh, for the Prophecy Watchers Conference. I spoke there last year also, as well as at some other churches in the area. It seems like we're in one of those cycles year after year. It seems like it goes in waves where for two or three years in a row you'll be focused on a certain geographic area and this year it seems to like last year seems to focus on the southeast this time of year but we'll be speaking at three churches in february and march uh, down that in that area three conferences um, but thinking about florida reminded me of a story i read years ago when i was working on an article uh, on discipleship for a, a journal and it was a story from a book by leroy imes now you may not know that name but he was a a, a pretty well uh respected and scholarly uh, theologian that wrote some books on discipleship. Uh, but here's a story that, uh, that Imes wrote in that uh, book. He said, One spring our family was driving from Fort Lauderdale to Tampa, and as far as the eye could see, orange trees were loaded with fruit. When we stopped for breakfast, I ordered orange juice with my eggs, but the waitress said, I'm sorry, sir, I, I can't bring you orange juice. Our machine is broken. Well, he said, at first I was dumbfounded. I mean, we were surrounded by millions of oranges, and I knew they had oranges in the kitchen because our plates were garnished with orange slices. So what was the problem? No juice? Hardly. I mean, there must be thousands of gallons of juice within walking distance. The problem was the machine was broken. Well, I got to thinking about that story, and it seems to me when it comes to evangelism, the church is broken. I mean, it's not that we don't have the resources. We're just broken. We're not functioning like we should. We're not functioning the way the Lord intended for the church in this present age to function when it comes to sharing the good news with others. And as I thought about that mental picture that Imes created when he told that story, uh, I got to thinking about the spiritual aspect of things, the spiritual battle that's raging. You've heard me talk about it a lot. It's been a, a key focus of mine for many years now, uh, as I've written my last uh, several books on the cosmic struggle between Satan and, and God, Satan working with his minions to try to take over this world, and, and how the spiritual battle is raging. Ephesians 6 and other passages come to mind. And, you know, uh, when things are heating up on earth, it's always an indication that they're heating up in the heavenlies. And certainly things, all signs seem to point to the fact that we're getting closer and closer to the return of Christ. But as I was thinking about that spiritual battle, I thought, you know, Satan must really be, you know, dumbfounded when he looks down from the heavenlies to this earthly realm, and he sees so many unbelievers intermingling with believers, and yet so few people sharing the gospel. I imagine he, he almost has a smirk on his face, thinking, these fools, they've got such powerful message right there that can completely change lives and take people away from Satan's army and incontrovertibly into God's family. Because remember, when a person 
is confronted with the gospel and believes the gospel, the Bible says instantly they pass from death to life. They're born again, born from above spiritually. They become part of the family of God. Their spiritual DNA is, is uh, changed. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. They're declared righteous before a holy God. They're reconciled with a God with whom they had been enemies prior. But they become part of God's you know, family. The Bible says you're no longer a child of wrath, i.e. a child of Satan, but instead a child of God. So Satan knows that all we've got to do is share the gospel, lead people to Christ, and he loses a soldier in his army. So I imagine he looks down with quite the smirk as he sees how broken our evangelism uh, enterprise is. So in chapter 2 of First Thessalonians, as we continue our journey through this early letter of Paul, I want to take a look at this idea of evangelism. We're going to spend two weeks on the first 12 verses of chapter 2. This will be part one of a two-part message. Uh, I had originally, early in the week, planned to just deal with all 12 verses, but as I kept putting it together, it just seemed like there was more and more meat here, and I decided I'll split it into two. So I'm going to call this the top 10 list for evangelism. This morning, we're going to look at the first five uh, in my top 10 list, and then we'll look at number 6 through 10 next week. Um, but again, the historical context, in case you're uh, just uh, uh, joining us Summer of 51 A.D., remember the church was founded in 33 A.D., so we're just 18 years into the church age. Uh, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He had visited Thessalonica about six months prior to writing this letter to them, the winter of 50 to 51 A.D. Now it's the summer. He writes both First and Second Thessalonians during that summer. He's in Corinth, and he's sending them this, uh, this letter. And I think, as we talked about the last couple of weeks, the first uh, chapter is, is, and really the first two chapters up to this point, are all about kind of recounting his relationship with the recipients and, and how much joy they brought him because of their maturity in the faith. And in this part, this morning, he's going to kind of talk about the circumstances surrounding the gospel and how they responded to the gospel. And so it essentially tells us what evangelism looks like before Satan has had 2,000 years to blind men's hearts to the gospel, twist and distort the gospel, uh, you know, and, and impact it the way to where we are in this day. So what are some principles that we can glean from Paul's interaction with the Thessalonians? The first one that I see is this, seize the opportunity. When it comes to evangelism, seize the opportunity. Do you look for opportunities to share the gospel? Have you considered, and how often do you consider, the possibility that whatever is happening to you in a given moment is really intended to open a door for the gospel? Um, I could think of lots of stories that illustrate this point before we get to our uh, text. For example, a dear friend of mine that I've known for over 30 years, in fact, I knew his wife before uh, Wendy and I were married and before he was married to his wife, but his name's Russ. He's been on our Not By Works program before. He's a pastor in Atlanta. In fact, one of the churches we're going to be speaking at next month is it at his uh, church. Uh, really looking forward to it. We've interacted many times through the years. I've spoken in his churches. He's spoken in mine. We've shared the platform at conferences together. Uh, just a great man of God, but fascinating story about how he came to faith. So Russ was not raised in a, a Christian family. In fact, he was raised in pretty much the opposite of a Christian family. He just didn't know the Lord, didn't know the things of the Lord. Uh, he was living uh, with his mom. He was in high school. And interestingly, their home was right across the street from a huge Baptist megachurch. 
that all these years, no one had walked across the street to tell them about Jesus. But the church got a new pastor. And I know this pastor. He's a very famous guy. And he is, when he had first come to this church, remember, this is a big mega church. Unlike any of his predecessors or previous staff members or anyone else, he's, his priority number one was to walk across the street and start sharing Jesus with people immediately contiguous to the church. So Russ came home one day to the house, and his mom was in the living room with this pastor and two other pe one other guy, and, and she was crying, and he thought, oh, my heavens, you know, she's, you know, some salesman is here trying to sell her something. They're browbeating her into buying something she doesn't need. You know, he didn't know what was going on. But long story short, before it was all said and done, both Russ and his mom bowed, prayed, and trusted Christ as their Savior. And it's an unbelievable story because then it, you know, Russ completely became a powerful testimony for the Lord. He was in evangelism for years. He's pastored churches. He and his wife have been all over the place uh, uh, on television singing and uh, his wife singing him uh, teaching. And he's just got a powerful, powerful testimony. Why? Because somebody sees the opportunity to simply, hey, I mean, it's right there. I can walk across the street and knock on a door. And the rest is history. Uh, I remember last year when we baptized Ed's uh, mom, and she told her fascinating story of how she came to faith. You know, shows up for jury duty, uh, and, uh, you know, she's early and ended up in the wrong parking spot, and the security guard knocks on her window, hey, you know, what, what, you know, what are you doing here? I'm here for jury duty. Uh, well, that jury duty is in the parking lot across the street, uh, and you're a bit early, but uh, since you're here, I'm going to share Christ with you, and began to share the gospel with her, and she trusted Christ. Imagine that, right? I seize the opportunity. And so we get to verse 1, and Paul is describing uh, how his interaction with them came about. He says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now that word in vain is the Greek word kenos, kenos and it, it means empty or to no purpose. So you might say our coming to you was, was not for no purpose. God had a purpose in mind. Uh, it, kenosis uh, is what we call in Philippians 2, the emptying of Christ. Uh, you know, when he emptied himself, made himself of no reputation. That's the same word here. It's, it's the idea of, of Christ putting off his, human, you know, his divinity, and not that he lost his divinity, but sort of voluntarily uh, putting on the humanity in, in his incarnation. Same idea. But Paul is essentially saying, when we came to you, it was not for no purpose. Now, why had they come? Well, they had come to Thessalonica after having suffered, been insulted, beaten, imprisoned in Philippi. We read about this in Acts chapter 16. They had to flee, and they, that circumstance, as difficult and unfortunate as it was, created an opportunity for them to preach the gospel where? In Thessalonica. And, of course, that's exactly what they did. And In fact, he's going to go on to say, we'll look at this in a moment, that even when conflict arose in Thessalonica, they still continued to preach the gospel. They seized the opportunity. Listen to what Paul says in his first letter. He wrote this a couple of years before writing the letter we're looking at. It was actually his first letter chronologically. He wrote it after his first missionary journey. And he says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you. Now, scholars have been all over the map trying to figure out what that physical infirmity was. You know, if God wanted us to know, I think he would have put it in his word. Uh, we can speculate, uh, but the bottom line is for some type of physical infirmity, it created a door of opportunity for Paul to preach the gospel to this churches in southern Galatia on his first missionary journey. 
and he seized the opportunity. We've all heard stories today about uh, godly Christian uh, men and women uh, who find themselves in the hospital. Maybe they're sick or having surgery or something. And what do they do? They share the gospel with the nurse or the doctor or the surgeon, right? Uh, I kind of get that mental picture when I think about these words in uh, Galatians 4.13. He seized uh, the opportunity. And then I could think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He wrote this on his third missionary journey, and he says, When I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. Are you looking for open doors? You know, it's interesting, that phrase, open door, you know, we use it in 21st century American sort of Christianese, you know, uh, uh, praying for the Lord to open a door, or, you know, I'm praying that the Lord will either open or close this door or, you know, pray with me that I'll see the open door, that kind of thing. Well, that comes from the Bible. A lot, a lot, like a lot of our Christian concepts and uh, thoughts, we don't realize that that exact verbiage comes straight from Scripture. It's used a lot in the book of Acts, an open or closed door. But here, Paul talks about a door was opened to me by the Lord to preach the gospel. So seize the opportunity. Are you looking for those open doors? And, and as we're going to talk about this morning, I think the reason we miss those open doors is we've become convinced of the lie that somehow evangelism is this complex, complicated, detailed thing that you got to take, you know, years of seminary to learn how to do, and you got to have this formula, and you got to study books, and you got to, you know, say it this way and this way, and we just, we become convinced that it's way too complicated. In reality, evangelism is just talking about Jesus with somebody. It doesn't get any more simple than that. The gospel is so simple a child can understand it. You've heard me say many times, you can state the gospel in 10 words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. How complicated is that? Certainly not complicated in Scripture, as we're going to see this morning. It's Again and again, it's, it's very simple. And all the early church did was tell others that, listen, you're a sinner, you need a Savior. And Jesus Christ, they all knew who Jesus was. Many of them had walked and talked with Him. He took your place on the cross. He paid your sin debt. He died for you. And He rose again, as Matt prayed a moment ago, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And, and it's only by trusting in Him who paid your price that you can have forgiveness and eternal life. Would you like to trust in Him today? What's keeping you from trusting in Christ? It's not that complicated. And yet, we don't seize the opportunity. That's one of the reasons I think the church is broken uh, today. Number two is show courage. Show courage. You know, it's getting harder and harder to share the gospel in a world that is so hostile toward God and, and anything moral or biblical. It takes courage to proclaim the gospel. I was talking to, I think it was Alex Newman this week. We had a great week at Not By Works on, on our uh, podcast program, some powerful guests, but I think it was Alex Newman on Friday who really, you know, had a profound uh, thought uh, that I haven't thought about lately, and that is the reality is the reason Satan, uh, well, let's put it this way, the reason the gospel enterprise is so broken is because Satan hates the gospel. Now, why does Satan hate the gospel? Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation that leads people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of, of light. It's, it makes people go from being a child of wrath to a child of God. It takes people out of Satan's army and puts them in God's army. So, of course, his goal is to keep the lost lost and the saved defeated. So he doesn't want any of the lost world to come to faith in Christ. So he's going to muddy up the gospel and confuse the gospel and to have people preaching a false gospel. 
but he's really becoming, the closer we get to the Lord's return, more and more hostile toward the gospel. I was asking Alex, you know, it's kind of strange to me why the powers that be, the Luciferian elite, whatever you want to call them, the deep state, why they would be so hostile to someone simply sharing the good news. How does that hurt them? How does it hurt Satan if I say to you, did you know God loves you? He, died, he sent his son to die for you, and if you'll trust in him, you can have eternal life? I mean, I can see at least on some level why the, 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 the lost world and the powers that be might be upset if I'm speaking out against homosexuality or LGBTQ or, or some other immorality of our day. At least you can understand how that touches a personal nerve. But the gospel seems to be nothing that would bother them, and that's the key. It not, doesn't necessarily bother them. It bothers their father. And Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. He hates the gospel. So he's doing everything he can to keep us from sharing the gospel and keep the gospel from going forth. Second Corinthians 4, 4 says he's blinding men's hearts to the gospel. So in our culture today, it's becoming harder and harder to do that. And it goes way beyond just being canceled on YouTube. Uh, you know, we were uh, had 11 different videos back two or three years ago canceled within about a one-year span and finally quit posting to YouTube. We just recently started again, in addition to Rumble and all of our podcast channels and all that. It'll be interesting to see how long it takes for them to give me another strike. But we're just trying to reach as many people as we can uh, with the gospel. But that's that's one thing. And that's frustrating. Yeah, okay, so I got canceled from YouTube or whatever. I mean, in the early church, they were imprisoned, beaten, tortured. Uh, for 2,000 years, people in other parts of the world have been beaten, tortured, killed, martyred. Um, and I think it's going to get harder and harder as Satan ramps up his attack on the gospel. So we go back here to verse 2, and he said, um, you know, we were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Bold here is a compound word in Greek. It means to speak freely. Speak freely. The idea is free speech, right? Uh, and, and the idea is you're not afraid to speak out. Nothing can scare you into shutting up. The word is used nine times in the New Testament, most of them in Acts, which makes sense because the early church was all about speaking in the face of uh, opposition, particularly the early unbelieving Jewish leaders were trying to get the church to shut up. Peter and John, remember Paul and others. But in Philippi, they had been subjected to both physical suffering and mental torture. That's what uh, spitefully treated means there. Even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated, they had suffered physically and been spitefully treated. They had undergone the, the affliction of beating and imprisonment, but they had also endured indignities, which, by the way, Roman citizens were not supposed to face those types of indignities in that day. It was unlawful to strip and beat and imprison Roman citizens without a hearing. But in spite of the fact that this had happened to Paul at Philippi, and in spite of the fact that it might have happened again at Thessalonica, that didn't deter him from preaching the gospel. He was bold. He spoke freely. Their boldness amid strong opposition was the sign of God at work in them. Is God at work in you to further the gospel? It reminds me of what Paul said to the Philippians years later when he was under house arrest in Rome and he wrote back to the Philippians and he said, according to my earnest expectation, hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Show courage. You know, if the Lord tarries his coming, 
there may come a time when we actually are, as they are in many countries, by the way, right now, already, particularly European countries, uh, forbidden from sharing the gospel, literally. That may happen here. And I think if the Lord tarries is coming, we may all look back and, you know, wish that we had shared Christ in a time when it was much easier to do so uh, because people need the Lord. So number three, first seize the opportunity, show courage, and then strive for accuracy. This is a big one. And it's a, it's a big one to me personally. You know, the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel has been a driving passion of mine for 35 years. I first became confronted with the, the, the concept that there is confusion about the essence of the gospel right after graduating from college before I went on uh, to seminary. And before then, I had really never thought about it. You know, I was like most people. You know, you ask them, what's the gospel? Oh, everybody knows what the gospel is, right? It's giving your life to Jesus, giving your heart to Jesus, inviting Jesus into your heart, surrendering your life to Jesus, committing your life to Jesus, forsaking all your sins. It's following Jesus. You know, I knew what the gospel was, right? Well, by the way, it's none of those things, at least not according to the Bible. <laughs> none of that's the gospel. And I became aware for the first time at the age of 22 that, you know what? There's a battle for the gospel. And it started me down a journey that ended up with me after I got my master's, going on and getting my PhD, doing my first P dissertation, which became my first book, all about the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. When we started Not By Works Ministries in 99, it became the core value because accuracy, as we now know from uh, you know, studying the Bible and from kind of being awakened to this reality of Satan blinding men's hearts to the gospel, is vital to the evangelism enterprise. Not just any old gospel will do, right? Uh, it's one thing to care about the destiny of the souls of your friends and acquaintances. And that's admirable. We should all have a burden for the lost. But if you're not providing an accurate solution, then they're no better off. In fact, they could be worse off because they may have done something that they think gets them into heaven, but according to the Bible, doesn't. Paul put it this way in Romans. Remember, he's writing Romans also on his third missionary journey, about five years after he wrote uh, 1 Thessalonians. He'd never been to Rome, but he tells us in chapter 15 of Romans that he, plan he longs to go there where he can share the gospel to those who've never heard it before. And right at the beginning of the letter, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation. Now, it's not automatically salvation. There's a condition attached. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who what? Believes. So you have to hear the gospel, and then you have to believe the gospel. That's how you receive the gift, 160 or more times. I think at the back of my Getting the Gospel Wrong book, I have an appendix that has, last time I checked, if I remember, it was 170-something references to faith alone and Christ alone, and that's it. That's how you have eternal life. So it's not automatic. Otherwise, everybody would go to heaven. Jesus paid the sin debt for the whole world, and he offers freely to all the gift of eternal life if they'll simply receive it from him by faith. But you do have to believe it. Like any gift, it has to be received. It's not forced upon you. And so it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Notice what Paul said in Ephesians. In him, Christ, you also trusted, synonym for belief, when? After you heard the word of truth, 
Hmm. So they had to hear the word of truth and then believe it. Well, what's the word of truth? I wish I knew. Oh, Paul tells us the word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were then sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Do you see the order there? You hear the gospel, the word of truth. You believe the gospel. The result is eternal life. It's been true from Adam all the way till the new heavens and the new earth. That's the only way anyone's going to be saved. Abraham, what? Believed and was justified. You don't get saved because you're of your good works or your baptism or your heritage or your religion or your desires or your promise or your pledge or your commitment. You get saved because you simply, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, receive the payment that Christ made on your behalf by faith. So back to our text, we have to strive for accuracy. Paul says three things in verse 3. We're going to finish this morning's message here in verse 3. For our exhortation did not come first from error. Error. That word error is an interesting word. We're going to look at it in a second. But I want to point out that the King James Version actually translate this Greek, translates this Greek word deceit, which is confusing because the actual word for deceit in Greek is used just a couple words later. So it's, it's, it's confusing. But of course, the Bible wasn't written in English. It's two different Greek words. This first one, deceit's not a good translation. The translation is error. It's the word plane. And plane means a wandering, roaming digression that goes astray into error. Plane, it's used ten times in the New Testament. A wandering, roaming digression that goes astray into error. Now, folks, if this does not describe the average gospel presentation today, I don't know what does. Most gospel presentations are a wandering, roaming digression that completely skirt the issue at hand of faith. They make it all about, well, you got to you got to give up this and give up that. You know, you can't get into heaven. You're not willing to give up this. Or you can't get into heaven unless you're willing to promise this. You got to forsake all. You got to pledge all. You got to promise this. You got to do this. You got to surrender this. You got to put him on the throne of your life. It's all about something that we do. As if we're entering into a bilateral arrangement and we got to bring something to the table and God will then provide something in exchange. But all of those verses that people mistakenly appeal to. If you go back and look at the context, they're Jesus talking to believers, like his, usually his disciples, the twelve. Uh, don't put your hand to the plow and look back. Count the cost before building a tower. Uh, those types of things. That's not how you get saved. He was talking to people that are already saved. And certainly it never says in those passages that this is what you do to have eternal life. But 160, 70, 80 times in the New Testament it says, you want to have eternal life? Believe in me. John 6, 47 is probably the simplest statement of the gospel in all the Bible. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life, period. Jesus said in John 10, if, if you believe in me, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. Uh, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's a simple matter of faith, and yet people are all over the map in what they tell you uh, you have to do to be saved. And, and this is why evangelism, I think, has become so neglected. It's because we've bought into the mistaken notion that it's complex, that you got to really know what you're doing. You know, that's for the evangelists, right? You know, well, I'll bring him to my pastor and let him share the gospel. Well, you can bring him to me. I'm happy to share the gospel anytime. 
But I, got, I keep a list of pastors that I don't want you to bring them to because they won't hear the gospel if you bring them to those pastors, let me assure you, right? But why not just talk about Jesus? Why not just do what Paul and the early Christians did when the door was open to them? You know what? I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And I realized that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose for my sins. And I'm going to trust in Him and Him alone as the only one who can save me. In 1 John, uh, we see the direct contrast between plane, error, and truth. John says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So Paul is saying, our exhortation did not come to you from error. You know, we know who Jesus is. We know what he said again and again. For example, the gospel of John is often called the gospel of belief because over and over and over again, he tells everybody he meets, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life. Do you believe I am who I said I am? Jesus said, for example, in John 8, uh, 24, I think it is, uh, if you don't b believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. But if you believe I am who I say I am, the only one who can save you, you'll have eternal life. Uh, I mean, they, they, these early Christians knew the facts, they knew the truth, and they were not afraid to speak it. So we've got to strive for accuracy. You know, we live in a world where, in some cases, people think anything goes. You know, everybody goes to heaven, right? Wrong. Some people think, well, you've got to have some religious affiliation, because every other religion is all about some type of contract. You know, you climb this ladder and you reach nirvana. You climb this ladder and you reach paradise with virgins waiting for you. You climb this seven sacraments and you get into hopefully heaven, but maybe purgatory. But you just got to, depends on how good you are, maybe you'll get the rest of the way someday. It's all about doing something. That's the religious way. Some people, it's the church. Well, as long as you're faithful to the church, or if it's the Catholic church, as long as you get your last rites, as long as the church somehow gets opens the door for you, you're in. Uh, almost everybody thinks on some level it's works, whether it's religion or the church or whatever, that it's all about me being good enough, that I have to measure up. I got to, you know, be good enough or be better than most or be at the top of the curve. But if, as long as I produce enough good works to make God happy, he'll let me in. None of that is accurate. We've got to preach the gospel. We've got to hit the target spot on. You know, evangelism is not like horseshoes or hand grenades, right? It's not like target practice, you know. Uh, Paul, you'll appreciate this. Uh, you know, when you do target practice, and I, I've been out target practicing many times through, through, you've been to the range or when we had property out on my property. I'm not the best shot, but I always take solace in the fact that my shots are usually within a pretty small circle. They may not be right in the bullseye, but they're, they're going to stop the guy. I mean, if I hit him here with unloading the clip, it, it, he's probably going down, right? So with target practice, I don't necessarily have to be spot on. It's going to do the job, right? Not so with the gospel. 99% accurate is 100% wrong. It's not faith alone plus baptism wrong. It's not faith alone plus, you know, surrendering your life to him and promising to follow him. It's not faith alone plus being good enough, plus going to church. You add anything. Faith plus makes it a net zero game. You can't, you can't get in. It's faith alone. And, you know, before we move on to the fourth point, let me hasten to add Notice I say strive for accuracy. 
We're all imperfect beings. We all occasionally use unclear, sloppy language at times. You know, I look back at, you know, I was, I was a Christian since I was age six, very heavily involved in high school and college and Christian ministry on campus. And I go back and look at some of my old keepsake notes of things that I said when I was that young, and I wonder how anybody got saved listening to me. <laughs> I do. It was so unclear and sloppy and but I thank God that the Holy Spirit can hit a home run with a crooked stick. Amen? Amen? But that does not excuse us from getting it right. We don't want to step up to the plate with a crooked stick. Right? We want to strive for accuracy. But Jesus said, I am the truth. And evangelism must, must, must be accurate. And that's why Paul was so impassioned about it in the very first letter that he ever wrote. I referenced it earlier, Galatians. Right out of the chute, he says, look, if anyone preaches anything, even an angel, other uh, than what I preach to you, any other gospel, let them be accursed. So where did Mormonism start? From an angel preaching a false gospel. Where did Islam start? From an angel preaching a false gospel. Where do most religions start? From someone preaching something false. That's not good news, which is what gospel means, but it's bad information. And Paul says, let them be accursed, meaning come under strong judgment. Anathema is the word. So strive for accuracy, show courage, seize the opportunity. Number four, search your heart. Search your heart. It's hard to imagine that we have to think about this, but, you know, fallen nature and corrupt nature uh, leads us down this road 2,000 years into the church age. Why are you engaging in evangelism? You know, uh, a lot of people do it just to get a feather in their cap, believe it or not. I've talked to people like that. They're just keeping score. You know, yeah, I led someone to Christ on the way to the conference today, Dr. Hickson. In fact, uh, let me see, that was number 742 uh, in my list here. Um, you know, pretty good, right? I'm sure there's a lot of crowns stored up for me in heaven. Why are you doing what you're doing? I remember the story of years ago of a, a big mega church uh, in Phoenix. It was a Baptist church. And every year, they won the award at the convent, National Convention for the, num the most number of baptisms for several years running. And finally, someone kind of looked a little closer and realized that every year, it was a lot of the same people getting baptized. <laughs> and then they looked again, and they realized that this was one of those pastors who I talked about earlier who was preaching a false gospel that basically said, well, if you sinned yesterday, you're probably not saved. You need to go back and do it again. You weren't committed. You didn't mean business. So, you know, they, obviously you're not a Christian. You didn't mean business, so you got to do it again. And so people year after year were lining up to get saved again because they thought their commitment wasn't strong enough and their commitment has to be strong or you're not really saved. And then, of course, since they, in their mind, weren't really saved, and they were just now getting saved for the first time, which was really like the 15th time, they had to get baptized again because baptism is something that comes after conversion. It doesn't save you. It's an outward expression of an inward experience. So this guy had deacons and Sunday school teachers and church leaders and staff members. I think even he himself was baptized 12 times. You know, it's just like constantly again and again getting baptized. So, of course, they were going to win the award. Uh, why, are you, why are you doing evangelism. So going back to verse 3, the next word we see is the word uncleanness. It speaks to the issues of the heart, moral impurity, moral impure thoughts, vileness, filthiness, rottenness. So I'm making an application here, and it might seem strange to think that Paul you know, thought it was necessary to speak out against moral impurity or sensual thoughts 
But the fact is, in his culture, in his day, a lot of the pagan religions could trace their success, their gaining of adherence, to the fact that they were sanctioning and promoting immorality. That's what a lot of the pagan uh, Eastern, you know, Greco-Roman religions taught. Things like temple prostitution. You know, come with us and you can do all these sensual moral sins. So Paul wanted to make it clear that he was not preaching the gospel out of some motivation to satisfy fleshly lusts. I'm not preaching here with an with a impure motive. Now, it may not be for the same impure motives today, but sadly a lot of people today have ulterior motives when they're preaching the gospel, especially if it's a works-based, commitment-based type of gospel. They want people to sign on the dotted line so they can build up the coffers, build up the church, and build up their reputation. Why do, why do we share the gospel? 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, uh, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Paul said it was because he was compelled to preach the gospel. His heart was pure. So search your heart. That's a great principle to remember. So seize the opportunity, show courage, strive for accuracy, search your heart, and finally, for this morning anyway, speak plainly. Speak plainly. Be direct. Be concise. Be clear. You know, that third word here in verse 3, he says, nor was it in deceit. Now, this word deceit is the Greek word dalos, and it literally means trickery or cunning. Trickery or cunning. And you can't, not to get too much into the weeds here, you can't see it from the original, from the English translation, but the original Greek, he's got from error, from uncleanness, or in deceit. So the first two, it's the Greek preposition from, it's the Greek preposition ek, meaning from. So Paul had not preached the gospel from an erroneous perspective, nor from an impure heart, nor had it come in the atmosphere of deceit or trickery. Here's the point. The gospel does not need to be cleverly worded, disguised in popular appealing language, or shrouded in creativity. It's powerful enough just the way that God gave it, the way God gave it. Now, Peter disavowed the use of clever and creative verbiage in favor of straightforward eyewitness accounts. Peter said, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. See, any other message, you've got to dress it up. You got to have a hook, right? You got to come up with some way to convince people to jump on board the bandwagon. Not the gospel. It's powerful enough. It's the power of God to salvation. Uh, Ephesians 4. Paul is contrasting spiritual maturity with what it was like before they were saved. And he says, I don't want you to be children any longer, tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Watch this by the tricking, the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. I tell you what, you know, I was in academics full time for 12 years and I've read the books and, you know, seen the literature. And these days, most schools teach evangelism as if they're, it's a marketing class. You know, how can they trick people into thinking this is, you know, for their own good? Well, it certainly is for their own good, but not in the way they're thinking. Because they think on the front end that the gospel is some kind of a bilateral contract where people have to do something to satisfy God and get into heaven, then they got to dress it up and say, look, I know it's tough. 
I know it's tough to lay down your life and give up all your sins and promise to be good and pledge allegiance and make Jesus Lord and surrender your life to Him. But here's the carrot. You know, here's this is what why you should do that. It's going to be better. No. You simply need to explain the bad news and the good news speaks for itself. See, the gospel has to begin with the bad news. You're a sinner who needs a Savior. And the penalty for that sin is eternal separation from God in a literal place of torment called hell. It's not my words, that's Jesus' words. But the good news is God loves you and doesn't want you to go to hell. You got yourself into this predicament. He created us with free will and we marched right over against his advice and took a great big bite of that apple. But then God took the extraordinary step of saying, in spite of your sin, I'm going to make a way out. I'm not going to force it on you any more than I forced you to sin. That was your choice. But now you've got another choice. Are you going to trust in me and receive my payment on your behalf? Or are you going to, like so many people, try to climb out of your own sin debt, you know, by just doing more and more and more and more? And the sad news is you can be 99% of the way there and still end up in hell. Because the, the righteousness that heaven demands is perfect righteousness. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, unless you're perfect, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And, and, and the only way to be perfect is to have Christ's perfect righteousness given to us. We can't undo the sinfulness of the heart. No matter how many good works we do, it doesn't change the heart. We need a heart transplant. We need the righteousness of Christ by faith. And so that's why evangelism really is so simple. You're, you know, explaining the bad news and offering the good news, you know. And you don't usually have to work very hard to explain the bad news. Most people understand they're sinners. Romans 1 tells us everybody knows they're a sinner. Some people are more blinded than others. You, you do have in these great last days of deception people who don't think there is right or wrong and don't understand the concept. But by and large, most people, you talk to them about sin, they go, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. <laughs> And if you have trouble, just start with the Ten Commandments. You don't have to get very far, you know. You, you familiar with the Ten Commandments? Oh, yeah, I know the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you know, don't lie, don't cheat. You ever broken any of those? Most people, oh, oh no, because they think, oh, that's that bad, you know. Oh, really? Um, you ever you ever lie to your parents when you were a kid? Well, yeah, whoop, you're in trouble. <laughs> uh, you ever cheat on a test? You ever lust? All right. You may not have murdered, but what did Jesus say? Have you ever hated? You've committed murder. So it doesn't take long, even if someone pushes back a little bit, but most people understand they're a sinner. And then you go, well, look, we're all in the same boat. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and we're all sinners on the road to hell. But guess what? The good news is, and that's what gospel means, good news, Christ loves you and paid your, your penalty, right? So we don't need to try to, to dress it all up, right? Um, so let's summarize these first five points. We've got the resources, like orange groves across the uh, across Florida. They're everywhere. The Spirit of God is at work. Bibles outnumber people in this country. The gospel is pretty clear and simple. It's not that complicated. It's not you know rocket science or trigonometry or quantum computing. It's Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. It's so simple a child can understand it. Christians are everywhere. So what's the problem? Well, the machine is broken. The church is broken, right? We're not taking advantage of the resources all around us. We're not seizing the opportunity. We're not showing courage. We're not striving for accuracy. 
We're doing it in many cases for the wrong motives. And we're trying to dress up something that is pretty powerful just the way it is. And I think no doubt Satan is quite pleased with himself as he looks down from the heavenlies and smirks. And so my takeaway as we transition into uh, the Lord's Supper uh, is this. For this first half of this uh, two-part message, I've already got the other five points, but I haven't put them together, and I don't know what the takeaway is going to be next week. But for this week, here's the takeaway. Let's wipe that smirk off Satan's face and share the gospel with someone today. And by the way, you know, if you want to get started, because it's really exciting when you start seeing the grace of God go forth and people awaken to grace. We've got gospel tracts out there, several stacks of them. Pick up a handful and just start by giving someone a gospel track. It says, good news. We created these at Not By Works Ministries. We give them out with everything that comes out of our office, any package, any letter, anything. We put them out at our conferences and give them away by the hundreds. Uh, Give it to your uh, waiter at lunch today. Give it to your uh, mailman. Give it to your babysitter. Give it, just give them out. Uh, over time, as you become more conversant with just talking to people about the Lord, you'll, you'll have no trouble just instinctively sharing it. But in the meantime, start with something as simple as these gospel tracts. So I hope you'll, you'll take some on your way out uh, today. So I'm going to pray. And then, uh, once again, I forgot to tap some people to help uh, Gary with the Lord's Supper. If three men... Uh, uh, could help me with the Lord's Supper. Just raise your hand if you'd help distribute the elements. Okay, Paul, okay, you, one more. Mike, awesome. All right, so I'm going to pray. If you guys want to come forward while I pray, and then we'll partake of the Lord's Supper together. What a great way to end a, a message about evangelism by focusing on the shed blood and broken body of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this time together this morning and just the glimpse that we get of Paul's heart and of the interaction that he had first with unbelievers sharing the gospel and then with uh, newfound brothers and sisters in Christ as he reflects back and writes back to them. Lord, raise up, I pray, men and women and young people of courage who are not afraid to talk about your Son and our Savior and share the good news. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.